right, guys, I got to tell you, if I could be any dead person, I choose Drusilla too. Does that mean I'm evil? Like the first evil? No. 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 Maybe. Hi, and welcome to Still Pretty, a Buffy the Vampire Slayer vlog and podcast. I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media, and we are here today to talk about Bring on the Night, the 10th episode of Season 7. It aired on December 17, 2002, and was written by Marty Noxon and Doug Petrie, with Rebecca Rand Kirshner as executive story editor and Drew Z. Greenberg as story editor. This episode was directed by David Grossman. This is Grossman's 12th of 13 episodes he directs for Buffy, starting way back in Season 3 with Enemies. As we've established, I am a season seven lover, but it's a challenge even for me to keep my attention focused on Bring on the Night. It's one of the connective tissue episodes. It's where we introduce the potentials to Hotel Buffy, where Giles returns and Exposition Fairies is ass off for most of the episode. But aside from that, we're not really doing much here. Aside from once again showing that the evil is the big bad evil of all big bad evils. But there's not much real evil happening. Mostly, Bring on the Night is just talk. And considering that two of my favorite writers are at the helm on this one, it pains me greatly to say it. Not as much as it pains Buffy to get the snot beaten out of her by the Turrican, but still, it pains me. All right, let's get into the weeds. In Bring on the Night, the Scoobies clean up after a hard night of bringer fighting, and Joyce visits Buffy in her sleep to give her some encouragement. You can't win against this thing. Meanwhile, the first slips on a slinky little Drusilla to try to convince Spike to come to the dark side, all the while using the Turrican to torture him. <laughs> After a visit to the evil underground seal of evil to rebury it under a few good shovels full of dirt because, yeah, that'll stop the evil, Buffy and Dawn bump into an evil-looking Principal Wood who is carrying an evil-looking shovel of his own. Apparently somebody left this in the courtyard and I was just returning it. That's some full-service principling. I try. Willow does a tiny little locator spell to try to find the first, but the first has other plans and takes over her body, freaking the hell out of everyone. Willow, most of all. I don't want to hurt anybody. Please, Buffy, don't let it make me up. Giles returns with three potential slayers in tow and starts making up for all his time lost as Sunnydale's resident exposition fairy. It only appears in the guise of someone who's passed away. A ghost. Also, it's not corporeal. It can't touch or fight on its own. Buffy and Giles find the first secret hideout under an old Christmas tree lot. And when Buffy falls into it, she gets into a fight with a Turrican, which she just barely survives. <laughs> When the Potentials hear about what happened, one of them runs off and gets herself killed by the Turrican. When Buffy finds her body, the Turrican beats the crap out of her, leaving her for dead. Oh, God almighty. While everyone freaks out that there's a vampire out there tougher and stronger than Buffy, Buffy rallies the troops, giving an inspiring, brave hearty speech. There is only one thing on this earth more powerful than evil, and that's us. 
the thing that's great about the first is that it's super evil, but it has limitations. It can't take corporeal form. It can only influence things that already have corporeal form, which is what it's been doing since time began. It's truly evil, messing with the memories of people's dead loved ones, getting into their heads. That's creepy and fun and keeps the domain of true evil where it belongs, in an internal space. But the thing that kind of sucks about the first is... What? Why? Why here? Why now? Why slayers? Is the slayer the only good thing that can fight a non-corporeal evil? What is the goal? What does the first want? And why is that a bad thing? The ambiguity of fiery apocalypse isn't helping here. Even if Buffy and the Scoobies don't know what the first wants, we should have some idea that it's in the pursuit of something. But there's nothing. And the thing that is the first downfall, its non-corporeal nature, makes it exactly the perfect enemy for Buffy to fight in this, her final season. For a girl who has been gifted with strength and speed and agility, very physical gifts, what better enemy for her to fight than one that works on a psychological level? We had that engine running for the first part of the season, but now we're moving back into the world of the physical with the uber vamp. We went through this in season five with Glory. She's a god. She's so tough to fight. But Buffy found a way to fight and defeat her. Physically. To have an evil that messes with your mind that makes you your own enemy. That's creepy AF. And it would bring this season of Buffy to a new place. A place we visited a bit already. And it was, if you'll pardon the pun, glorious. In Bring on the Night, we've got what? A badass uber vamp who isn't killed by a stake and who can kill a potential slayer and almost kill Buffy. He's tough and he's scary and he's got that whole Lord of the Rings or a Kai thing going for him, but it's just another physical enemy. We watch as the first torments Spike while playing as Drusilla, and this thing just beats up on him. But we're not really doing anything. It seems like the first wants Spike to go all team evil, but the first has to know that's not going to happen. So again, why waste all this time? What are we just hanging around for? And that's the problem with having no specific goal. We end up just treading water because we have no forward movement. Nothing to swim toward. You think you'll ever show up for a real visit? The kind where the world isn't about to end. It's about this, I promise. Good. Because I miss you. Don't get me wrong, it's wonderful to have Giles back, and I am here for Anthony Stewart Head anytime he wants to grace Buffy with his presence. But damn, this episode gives him almost nothing to do but deliver an endless string of expositional dialogue. And while he does it as well as it can be done, it's not, you know, interesting. There were many more like them all over the world, but um, now there's just a handful, and they're all on their way to Sunnydale. Uh, what you thought was a vampire, but it was um, something more than that. It was a, a Turok Khan. The first predates everything we've ever known. Or can know. It's everywhere. It's pure. I don't know if we can fight it. See what I mean? Now, let's not pretend here. Giles is no stranger to the exposition fairy role, but in the past, we've had other things happening, and we haven't given him so much of it at once. It's like loading up the exposition pack mule, slapping it on the ass and telling it to get to work. It gets the job done, but it's not fun for anyone. Giles drops in, no email, no phone call, with three potentials in tow, two British and one Kennedy, more on that in a minute, and we don't get much of a reunion. It's just, hey, drop all this info dump in the middle of the scene and make it look good, Tony. It makes this episode feel like killing time, the connective tissue between the first half of the season and the second. But the episode itself isn't really about anything. 
it's kind of sloppily put together. Buffy, evil isn't coming. It's already here. Evil is always here. Don't you know? It's everywhere. And I have to stop it. It is unfortunate that Bring on the Night gives us so little to talk about. It's not a terribly bad episode, but it's not a terribly good one either. It's an episode that has the job of moving us from the first half of the season into the second half of the season. And it does that job with all the enthusiasm of a middle schooler being told to do the dishes. So what are we accomplishing here? Well, we got Giles back, so there's that. And we got the potentials. Now, I like the idea of the potentials, although I'm still confused by the world building around them. How are potential slayers identified? What do the watchers of the potential slayers do exactly? How many are there? Do they train these girls like just in case? Why do some potentials have watchers and others don't? Why is the council able to pay the watchers but not the slayers? Where the hell was Buffy's watcher before she got called? Where do the watchers get their funding anyway? Whatever. None of it matters. Well, it matters, but we're not going to get the answers, so whatever. The idea of the potential slayers is cool, even if unformed in the universe. And I like that they're being hunted and then being corralled into Sunnydale, the same town that's currently hosting BringerCon 2002, but I'm letting that go. It's a cool idea. The potentials themselves, however, they're annoying. This is the same group of people that brought us Buffy and Willow, so I don't think it's that they don't know that teenage girls don't have to be screechy and irritating. It's just that they finally got Dawn out of that territory, and now they don't know where to store all their excess screechy and irritating material, so they dumped it on the potentials. And then, there's Kennedy. This is the Slayer? <sighs> Look. I don't care if Willow gets a new girl to flirt with. I loved Tara. We all loved Tara, but Tara's dead. And Willow's too young to spend the rest of her life wearing black and tending to a shrine. But Kennedy. I mean, ugh. I don't mind Iyari Limon. This is not her fault. Kennedy is written to be sassy and provocative, and they didn't want to just create Tara 2.0 and put her in the middle of the whole thing. I get it. Those are actually solid narrative instincts. But Kennedy is a crappy character. She's smart and she's strong, but she's also spoiled, bratty, overconfident, and most of all, most of all, wrong for Willow. They wrote the character with a couple of strengths, a whole host of weaknesses, absolutely no vulnerability. She's not even scared in the face of an unknowable evil that has been actively trying to kill her. And then in two seconds, she's already hitting on Willow and demanding to sleep in the bed with her? Uh... No. If this had been a heterosexual relationship, we'd see the issue with that bullshit right away. It's gross, it's presumptuous, and it's predatory. But because it's a woman doing this to Willow and not a man, somehow we're supposed to see it as cute and perfectly fine? It's not. Once again, for those in the back, both people have to be into something in order for it to be even remotely sexy and at all acceptable. This girl is completely freaking Willow out with her advances, and it is not okay. When someone won't wait for a yes or take no for an answer, it's not cute. It's gross. So this is our first impression of Kennedy, an obnoxious brat who is forcing herself on Willow within 15 minutes of meeting her with no consequences for those actions. So it appears that we're supposed to think it's cute because she's a girl. But aside from that, this episode doesn't do anything. We torment Spike, who resists the first call on the strength of Buffy's belief in him, and that doesn't land well. Give it up. Whatever you are, whatever you get away with, I'm out. You can't pull this puppet's strings anymore. 
And what makes you think you have a choice? What makes you think you will ever be any good at all in this world? She does. Because she believes in me. Before the soul, Spike resisted Glory's torments to protect Buffy and Dawn. His ability to stand up to torture has been pretty well established. The implication that the only thing preventing him from switching over to the first side is that Buffy believes in him is a bit weak sauce here. He has a soul. He knows right from wrong now. And the first has been making his life a living hell since he got back to Sunnydale. Buffy believing in him is a big deal for his relationship with Buffy. It's not a big deal for him choosing right from wrong. Not now. Then we've got a little more ambiguously evil Principal Wood culminating in this weirdness. What kind of movies do you like? Oh, me? Mysteries. I love finding out what's underneath it all at the very end. Another interesting thing we have here is Joyce, once again in an ambiguous space. She's appearing to Buffy when Buffy's sleeping. That's dream territory. When the first appears, it appears during waking hours. We've seen no evidence with anyone else that it invades your dreams. So are these visions of Joyce the first? Are they Buffy's subconscious looking for an authority figure to tell her what she already knows? Or are they really Joyce visiting Buffy, trying to protect her? I vote for option number two. I don't think it's the first. I think it's Buffy's fear of the first. Fear that the first will come to her as her mother. Hit her in that incredibly vulnerable space. And you know what? That's exactly what the first would do. If it could. We had a discussion after conversations with dead people about whether Tara was somehow immune to the first. The first couldn't wear a Tara suit because Tara was too capital G good and the first can't have access to those people. But the first dresses up as Buffy all the time, and Buffy is our main example of goodness, isn't she? She had a bit of a dark run in season six, but as bad as she felt about using Spike to punish herself, it wasn't that bad. I mean, everyone's been that shade of dark at one point or another. But Tara and Joyce do seem immune from the first, or the first is avoiding using them for reasons. I don't know, and I don't have a strong theory about it. But I think if the first could use them, it would. Why it doesn't? Well, that's anybody's guess. Hashtag still pretty with your thoughts. I'd love to hear them. All right, all in all, the sum total of Bring on the Night doesn't add up to much. It's a meh episode written by two of the most brilliant writers we've had yet on the show, so I don't know what to do with that except to say that everyone has off days, and there's good stuff coming, so let's get to it. All right, that'll do it for today. Remember to visit Chipperish Media at chipperish.com for more great podcasts, including Sex and Whiskey, an Outlander vlog and podcast done in the style of Still Pretty, but with more, you know, sex and whiskey. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on Season 7, Episode 11, Showtime. Until then, stay pretty. Still Pretty is a Chipperish Media production and is entirely patron-supported. To find out how you can keep us in production, visit patreon.com slash chipperish.